It's that time of the week again. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop! It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris as they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. As well as the music of today. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Digital Kill the Radio Star starts right now. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. Hope everybody's enjoying uh, being quarantined and uh, is in their secret hideaway bunker trying to stay away from the COVID-19 virus. Uh, I know my buddy Chris is. Chris, uh, you're staying underground these days, aren't you? As much as I can, man. David, I'm like you. I'm a healthcare worker, so we uh, it's kind of business as usual for us, right? Yeah, nothing has changed for me except my commute is about 25 minutes uh, faster because of uh, there's no traffic on the interstate. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm very fortunate to have a job, and um, I'm I'm not complaining about having to go to work. So Same here, man. So, all right. So, our guest this week is Greg Renoff, and if you remember, uh, a couple of years ago, we had him on here when we were at the um, Nashville Rock and Pod. He wrote a book called Van Halen Rising that Chris and I both really loved, and a lot of people really liked. Uh, pretty much universal uh, uh, acclaim for it. Uh, if you remember correctly, it was all about that very, very, very early years of Van Halen, going back to the Van Halen brothers being in, um, in like junior high school and up until i think the start of recording of the second album if i remember correctly but he has a tour yeah the first tour he has a new book coming out about ted templeman now um ted is is famous for the most recognized i guess for recording a lot of those van halen albums but he had a really, really good career and a really diverse group of artists that he produced. So we're going to get to that in a second. But, uh, Greg, how are you doing, man? I know you're in Oklahoma, so uh, I don't think you guys have been hit as hard as everybody, a lot of other states have, have you? With- yeah, the, uh, it's great to be here with you guys. Yeah, it has not been uh, too too scary. Um, of course, the question, we don't get too far afield of our topic of music, but of course, you know, there hasn't been a ton of testing here. And so that's part of the other issue too, is, you know, until we have a, the good testing numbers, you don't really know. But, um, I think the other thing that a city like Tulsa, probably like a city like Memphis or some of the other smaller Midwestern cities, the population density isn't such where you're so packed in with people. I mean, there's obviously it's a city and there's a lot of people here, but you can, you know, there's, you're not walking out of a building like you are in Manhattan or San Francisco and there are people everywhere. So, um, that's a, an advantage, but, uh, yeah, we're doing okay here in Tulsa. Well, that's that's good to hear, but it's kind of frustrating not having anything to look forward to. Like, I, I know I keep complaining to some of my friends. I said, "Man, I know I'm very fortunate. I'm, you know, I've got a job and everything, but man, there's just nothing to look forward to." And I was like, "I've had all these concerts canceled, and probably for the first time since I was 15, I don't have a concert to look forward to, and it's kind of driving no. me crazy." No, but um, the uh, yeah, I was going to tell you guys that the night 
I, I, I were uh, the, the morning I woke up on March 9th, I was expecting to be going to see David Lee Roth and Kiss here at Tulsa at the uh, BOK Center. Um, and by 11 o'clock or 10.30, somebody I knew who knew one of the guys in David's band texted me and said, hey, just going to give you a heads up. The show's going to get canceled tonight. It was sort of like being whispered by some of the guys in David's band. And, it, and uh, in fact, the the, uh, the trucks had left. I guess they had arrived on the night of the 8th to to load in the gear for the Kiss and David Lee Ross show, meaning the uh, the 18-wheelers. And there was a decision made by, I don't know, by Kiss's management, or I don't know, again, I don't know who, Live Nation, whoever, I don't know who decided to pull the plug on the tour, but they they left. And, uh, yeah, it's been, <laughs> so I was, you know, I was actually, you know, hours away from seeing David Lee Roth and Kiss, and then, you know, it's been, it's been all uh, pretty quiet since then. I joked on Twitter uh, tonight. I had a video that I had of, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure, that, pretty sure it's right, the last arena show I went to was to see Paw Patrol at the BOK Center, you know, so it was like the kids' show, so I was like, if that's my last arena concert, it's, uh, it's going to be a sad last end of my life or whatever, if that's it for us, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, there's nothing no sports, which is even weird, right? There's no, no uh, NBA. There's MLB is not happening. Um, there's questions about the NFL season. I mean, it's 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 don't, no no March Madness. I mean, which is like it's like it's almost like you know, unthinkable. You know, well, I think it would like a war would cancel about March Madness. Not even maybe. Well, you know, and I'm a, I'm a huge football fan, and so the thought of no college football or NFL just absolutely frightens me, but. XFL, I think it completely did it in. And some could say that it was going to die anyway, but I don't think it was because they were they were doing better than they did their first stint. And word is, it's done. Yeah, Concert, XFL, yeah. Yeah, concerts, man. I, I had uh, yours is yours is way worse than mine. I mean, you got a day of cancellation. I had one. I was going to go like I'm Memphis, Tennessee, and I was going to go to Brian Fallon. I don't know if you're familiar with him, Greg. I don't but, know uh, if I know it. Yeah, Gaslight. The Gaslight he, he Anthem. Sings, he sings for a band called the Gaslight Anthem. That was his, oh yeah, that was okay. his band. I, I was going to see him in Dallas, and uh, yeah, about a week, two weeks maybe before the show canceled, Ugh. and just brutal, man. I'm ready to go see some live music. I know. I, I I was supposed to go see Wilco this upcoming Wednesday night, and that got canceled. And then uh, I don't know if you know Greg. I have a Black Crows podcast. They're 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 my favorite band, and I had the. Um, the meet and greet package and everything for this summer to see them. That hasn't been canceled yet, but I've, it's going to be, I'm, what's the day? Uh, June the 26th, I think. There's a chance. Yeah. Yeah. So you, uh, I get asked, David, are you, you, uh, familiar with, um, Matt wake, Matt writes for, um, the Atlanta, uh, he writes for um, a paper in Alabama. I can't believe I cannot remember the name of it. But uh, Matt's on Twitter, and Matt is a huge Black Crows fan. Oh, I have huge, to. huge Black Crows fan. You should definitely have him on your podcast. He is a, a journalist, uh, freelance. He does freelance stuff, but he also writes for. I cannot believe I cannot remember the the paper he writes for in Alabama. So I think it's in Birmingham, but um, or the maybe it's the Montgomery Advertiser. Oh, I know it is. It's al.com, right? He writes for al.com, whatever okay. that is under the banner under. But um, yeah, um. Pick, uh, check him out on either on Facebook or Twitter, but yeah, you guys have really hit it off because he's that's his his band too, Black Crows. I will, yeah, I'll, uh, you know, he may he may follow us on our Twitter. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'll look it up. Cool. Um, well, let's go back to the first book real quick, Van Halen Rising. Man, this thing was just I haven't read any, a negative review on it. I think people just really sucked sucked it up because there was, you know, they're one of the most elusive bands on earth and. There, you never get any 
thing out of them. You know, they have that goofy Van Halen news uh, website that never has any news on it. You know, it's the biggest like misnomer of all time. Were you surprised at how how excited everybody was for that book? Well, yeah. I mean, I think the thing was for me, I was entering into a world of writing that I hadn't done before. I'd never written them up as we've talked about, I think for a recovering college professor, I had been a historian. I, I'm a historian, but I was teaching college and, you know, I wrote this, the, the book kind of on a, at the beginning, kind of a lark. Um, and it just sort of snowballed into this thing where it became, um, you know, worth it to me. And I was driven to do a book and, uh, I, you know, I had, I had hopes that the book was going to do reasonably well, but it did do better than I, I had expected and never dreamed. I mean, you know, it was, it was, there was a great, uh, response, to it and i think i would credit that to i think people could see that i really had poured a lot of myself into the book and worked really hard to make it a book that i wanted to read which was one that really was detailed and really filled in a lot of the blanks the things that i wanted to know and and didn't want to just gloss over things were that were easy to um just go well that's not important because it for whatever you know that's not important i can just gloss that over and i really wanted to kind of fill in those blanks and uh, the other thing, of course, is that, as you mentioned, there's this big vacuum in in uh, the world of Van Halen. I don't even it's not just Van Halen news or Van Halen anything, because the band is relatively um, reticent to say anything. I think that's a nice way of putting it. They don't have any real presence on the Web in terms of the band itself. They don't you know, they don't offer any updates and, and they've never done the guys in the band have never done other than Dave did a book years ago and Sam, the other guys in the band have never done books. There's never been any behind the music. There's never been a documentary. There's never been a box set. There's never been any of those things. And so I think part of it was, I just, I in some ways lucked into the, the situation where there was a, there was, as you mentioned, a great desire for information and it wasn't as if (laughs) there was, there was a lot of competition for the band, you know, in terms of like, there was just like a wide open field for me to do this thing. And so, um, I, I feel that uh, that was obviously a big reason why people gave the book a chance and then embraced it, you know, because they read it and they thought it had quality to it. But I think that I, it got a it, it got a good initial response in part because people were so hungry for like you're know, like we want something cool to read about Van Halen. They're hoping it's going to be good, you know. And it turned out that people liked the book, so I'm really glad about that. Well, I, I Greg, coming from a, a life of academia, had you and my apologies for not knowing this in advance, but had <laughs> you were you a published author before? Yeah, I'd done a book. Um, so I, I went to grad school at uh, did actually did my master's at Old Miss, and then I went on and did my PhD at Brandeis in Boston, and I wrote a dissertation there uh, on uh, traveling circuses. And then I published a book it was you know a straightforward academic book published by University of Georgia Press on uh, basically the circuses as, as a popular mass entertainment, meaning like you know what what it was like when circuses used to come to town and perform, and how that affected communities who were um, not necessarily thrilled about these big shows coming. So the analogy might be, you know, in, in uh, the seventies, there'd be these people who come out and protest against kiss. That was actually not so different than what happened in the late 19th, early 20th century. There was a lot of evangelicals in the South and a lot of people who were, you know, um, not super enthusiastic about this, what they thought was a kind of a sinful entertainment, which is kind of hard to believe, but it, that was the way the yeah. circus was seen. And then um, the other thing, of course, the people who would, would, uh, would go to these shows and, you know, kind of like slink in, like kind of embarrassed, but they wanted to see these shows. So I kind of looked at that whole that whole effect of that stuff. And, uh, you know, I kind of realized in retrospect that I was really, in some ways, when I wrote the 
that dissertation, that book, I was kind of channeling my own experiences with Arena Rock because these shows were were very big for the time. They maybe put twelve thousand people into a tent, ten thousand people, um, where they put up these you know very very big three ring circuses, these giant giant um, tents. And so uh, that was part of what this kind of a spectacular entertainment that everyone would be talking about for days and days afterwards, kind of like we were, you know, we go to a concert and talk about it the next day at school. So that was kind of the uh, the for me, in some ways, the way that I I got at those issues while I was a uh, academic. And then the Van Halen book started out as just a was supposed to be just a fun side project, had another quote unquote academic book in the works. But this one, the Van Halen book just sort of continued to. snowball in terms of the amount of research I was able to do and the stories I was getting. And so that it built into a book where, um, yeah, that was kind of the end of my academic career. And as a professor, um, it didn't, it didn't end it, but it just was kind of a kind of some other circumstances that, that had, uh, uh, come into our life. And I left academia and, uh, my wife going to work, work, uh, at a different university. So I left my job and it was, uh, yeah, it just worked out to be, uh, a, uh, reception for the book that I hadn't, again, I had not expected it to be the way it it did, but, um, you know, it's been great. It's been really fun. Now you've mentioned on Twitter, uh, and Chris and I were talking about this beforehand and, and Chris, I don't step on your feet, but you mentioned on Twitter that there's talk of possibly a a movie. So yeah, the, the Van Halen rising book has been optioned for a movie and, you know, in terms of knowing, much about this or being the guy who knows any what's really going on. I'm like the last person to find out anything that ever happens with this. Um, it's honestly true. It's like, you know, I'm like so far down in the food chain. They're like, we got, you know, we own the rights to your book. Don't we? We'll, we'll fill you in when we need to. I mean, the guys who have optioned are fine. They're, they're, they're good guys. I'm not knocking them, but just, you know, I'm, I'm not like at the meetings, you know, in Hollywood or whatever, but um, yeah, it's been, uh, I don't want to say who's optioned it because it's, I don't know how, you know, I don't, I just don't know about the, what, what, uh, what the people who had optioned it would feel about me revealing who it is, but it, the, the, the production company that owns the rights to it or is intentionally is working on a script for it is, is one that people would recognize and have, has made a number of successful movies over the years. I mean, they've had, they have a good reputation for, for making, um, similar types of, of, um, you know, movies, I would say that, that have a, have a chance to, I would say go for, um, go for a good shot at, at Netflix or, or uh, on the big screen. But the thing is, of course, now with all the stuff that's going on with this, I have not heard anything lately. And it's entirely possible. I mean, I think the, that nothing will ever happen with it. I mean, the perfect example is, um, you know, novels get written. You know, the, the great one for me, an example, like just is a good one, is um, First Blood, which was written in like 1971 and didn't get made into a movie until what they're 82 maybe mm-hmm. 1982 the first blood would come out so you know it's one of these things that there could be you know, they could make nine scripts and nothing could happen or they could they could say hey we're done we we don't think it's going to work um but you know these types of movies if it, it just in general if you think about it something like the dirt it's not a big budget i mean that's the thing that you actually have going for you is that it's not a big budget on the other hand again this is just speaking generically not necessarily about Van Halen Rising or any, you know, if you have the support of the band per se, meaning the Dirt or the Queen movie or the Elton John movie, obviously that's a big, a big hurdle that has to be overcome. And I don't know, I have no idea where that stuff stands um, beyond the fact that I know that there's no like quote unquote green lighted movie. So for what it's worth, but that's another, another um, hurdle for a lot of these projects. Obviously, if you have the music, you guys may remember there was a, a music a movie that was put out a few years ago, maybe. 10 years ago about Jimi Hendrix 
and yes. it ended up being that they didn't, you know, I've got a lot of things to say about the Hendricks family and the Hendricks estate and how they've handled things. Uh, this was, you know, from, I think it was, was it Keb Moe? I cannot remember who played um, the Jimi Hendrix in the movie, but they wouldn't license any of them. I mean, again, it was a big, you know, director, big budget. It was not meant, no, it wasn't going to be some like sea level movie. It was, it had the potential to be a really good movie, but they wouldn't even license like any of the songs. And so they ended up having to do all the the covers. They did like you know Sergeant Pepper, and they did Wild Thing. Basically, they used the music they used in the movie were, were songs that Jimmy performed, but not any Hendrix songs that Hendrix wrote. So you know that's all the, all part of the things that would happen. But it's it's a cool you know it's definitely a cool feeling when you find out that someone's like oh yeah this could be a movie. And but I also from what I've been able to figure out is that things don't move very quickly unless it's like an obvious. I don't know what to say. You know, like it's a kind of like one of those things where somebody immediately buys in, like again, just generically making up like Brad Pitt likes this script and suddenly like <laughs> everyone's like, okay, you know, I'm like, they'd like right, the whole thing like immediately gets like run to the finish line because Brad right. Pitt wants to play in the movie. So it wouldn't be like that. I mean, a movie like this would be, it would be almost certainly all unknowns. You know, like they did with the, Mot- kind of with the Motley movie, not necessarily unknowns, but guys, you know, they're not going to have like high, high uh, paid famous people play these, these individuals. They'd be just, you know, the people who have starting out in their career are relatively unknown people. So, um, but we'll see. It's cool. I mean, I think it, I, you know, I'm, of course I'm biased, but I think it would make a, a, uh, a cool movie and it would not be super expensive to make. And I think actually, I think be, if it was done well, I think it'd be a lot of um, enthusiasm for it because anytime you talk to people about the Van Halen story, you kind of get beyond the sort of the typical, like, you know, rock star stories and kind of get to the brothers and the relationship with Roth. There's that personality clash and their different way they were raised and everything. I think that that makes for a very interesting, um, potentially character contrast there. And so we'll see. I'm, I'm, you know, I wouldn't say I'm optimistic, but it's, you know, as they've renewed the uh, option a couple of times, the options are a year. I can't remember the, you know, the, the first one might've been 18 months and then it's a year. So they, they keep sending me, you know, relatively small amounts of money to keep, um, keep the option going. And so you just got to keep hoping, but you know, that's uh, all remains to see what happens with that. Well, you, you know, talk about like it not costing much. I mean, hell half of it, half of the movie would be in a backyard. Right. Right. I mean, right. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the thing. It's not like making like some sort of like, like you know, like, you know, some CGI massive, like, you know, production with all these big budget stars and like you know, these locations, it wouldn't be like that. Right. It'd be in backyards. It would be like concert footage scenes, concert scenes. And then, yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm guessing it would be in this, similar vein of dirt that type of thing where you're not you know you're just you're just staging restaging concerts and then having performances where whatever they're in the studio or they're backstage or they're hanging out or whatever so yeah it's you know it's not like we have to like well, you have to like you know crash a plane into like you know the desert and like you know like but you know it's nothing like it's nothing like that so yeah well so, and speaking of the dirt you know you, you talk about the time it takes i mean the dirt my god that was probably i don't know how long it was but it feels like 10 years oh 86 was talking about that movie easily easily, and, easily and, right and so I know it does take time, but one thing that I thought about, and you kind of answered this question in, in your answer previously, but I was wondering to to make a film like this based off of, of your uh, your book Van Halen Rising. I, I get you kind of like I said, you kind of answered it. I guess you wouldn't need the consent of the Van Halen, the band, the brothers. The, I, you know, that's the type of thing that I don't, that's, you know, the quote unquote above my pay grade. I don't know. I mean, I, I actually broached that with the, the folks that had optioned it and they just said, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. I don't know what that means. I mean, I don't know if that means if like somebody said, you know, I'm going to make a movie about Elton John and Elton John is like, 
hell you are going to make a movie. You're not making a movie about me. There's no way you're making a movie about me, whether that would be a roadblock or that would just be an obstacle. I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. So, you know, I don't think, and again, I'm never in the loop in these things until like six weeks after these things happen, but I, I have every reason to believe that there's been no direct proposal made to anybody in the camp of Van Halen. I mean, I'm, I'm almost, I would say I'm like 99% sure that's true. So, um, you know, I don't think they're there yet because they would have to, they would basically have to go, yeah, let's give this, let's, we're going to try to go with this. I would think before they would do that, but I don't know. Um, you know, the other thing to think about is again, speaking generically, if you are going to make a movie about Elton John and you can go to Elton John and say, Hey, look, you know what? We have this deal. We have these actors in place. We have this, we have that. We can, you know, we can promise you this, that, and the other thing in terms of whatever, a soundtrack album. Again, I'm just making all this stuff up, whether that's the sort of, you go to the person then and say, what do you think? And they go, no, that's a lot of money for basically no work on our end. And as long as it's not a disastrous portrayal of me and I can approve the script or whatever, then why wouldn't I make a movie? I'm Elton John and I can use more, more money. Um, but I just, yeah, I just do That's the stuff I just don't know that much about. But I, yes, I would say that in the instance of the Hendrix movie, I, I don't, again, I, I would have to go back and reread. I know for sure they refused to license the music, which leads me to believe they were not willing to basically go along with the movie idea and they went ahead with it anyway. So I would have to go back and reread the articles. I had read them years ago. Uh, but you know, that's the thing too. I, I don't know the, the legality of like a public figure type, you know, you can make a movie about Nixon, right. And the Nixon family can be like, we don't want you to make this movie because it makes Richard Nixon look bad. Well, they, Oliver Stone made it anyway. I'm, I feel certain that Nixon's grandchildren and stuff weren't like, great. Can you make my, you know, make my grandfather or great grandfather look like a psychopath. That'd be awesome. You know, make this movie. So, but again, I don't know a lot about it. Well, the good thing is, if they won't let you license the music, they did so many cover songs that you could be able to use so many of those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's, again, that's that's all like way, way down the road. But I would imagine it's the same type of, uh, presuming, right, if there were something like that, it would happen. That would probably be the strategy if it was, you know, again, if it, if it were green-lighted to go ahead and there were the people who had opted it and were making it and producing it were like, we're going to make it no matter what. And I think that's the right. That's the road. The uh, the road would be uh, theoretically speaking, was it what they did with the Hendrix movie? Again, what is the name of that movie? I, I've um, seen it. Yeah, it's uh, like Hendrix. All about Hendrix in London, right? It's again. It's like that. It's before he's famous. Right. right. That was the whole point of the movie. Right. Right. Sounds familiar. All right. So the new book that you've got coming out is Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music, and uh, it says that my copy will be uh, sent out on the twenty first of April. But I saw today that you were saying that some book establishments are going ahead and sending it out now is that right i you know it's the weirdest thing it's uh you know with van halen rising when it came out it it pretty much i mean some people i don't remember let's say it came out like october 10th 2015 i mean people might have gotten it like the ninth but it was pretty much dead on like the books were arriving like they had time you know amazon or wherever was shipping it and they know okay it's gonna take four days to get there they sort of had this they right. knew they know how long it takes to get something from a warehouse to somebody's front door they know obviously they're logistics right they know that but I don't know what, what went on. It was actually Barnes & Noble that shipped it. And I talked to the, the publisher, ECW Press, who published the book. And they were just like, um, you know, they didn't really have a good answer for why. But they're like, we don't think this is a bad thing. And I didn't think it was a bad thing either. I mean, I figure people are sitting around this month. They're not doing anything. And so they want to read a book. It's great. I mean, I, I'm, I'm actually perfectly fine with it. The only thing that sort of threw me for a loop a little bit is that I'm going to be offering up signed copies of the book 
um, from me, and I have a website that's going to go live. It was supposed to go live before the 21st to sort of sell the books. And, you know, I, I could have, I guess I could have had the low website live like six months ago, but I didn't want it to, you know, whatever. I just figured like put it up. It would, it would be up. And then people, anyone who wanted a personalized signed book could get one from me. But, um, <laughs> obviously I'm, I'm obviously behind schedule, right? Cause it's like that people can get it from Barnes and Noble. But, um, yeah, I mean, so the book, the book is, some people have it. Um, and I, I don't know if that means like Amazon will start shipping it too, if they sort of figure out that Barnes and Noble has shipped it or not. But yeah, it's, it's supposed to be out the 21st and it is, um, what is it tonight? The 10th we're talking and it's not, <laughs> you know, people three days ago, people had it or two days ago, people had the book. So yeah, it's out in theory. All right. So his name is one that I remember growing up seeing because I'm a nerd, like all the rest of us, mm-hmm. I'd get the album or the cassette at that time, you know, and you would look on there and you'd always see Ted Templeman. And I just remember thinking to myself, this guy must only do Van Halen albums, you know, because it's, that's, right. you know, what you saw him on. Did you get to know him through the process of writing Van Halen Rising or was there a prior relationship? Well, no, I mean, yeah, there was no, no uh, relationship prior to Van Halen Rising. And it was a matter of me, you know, I wanted to interview him and I wanted to interview Don Landy and I wanted to interview the guys in the band. But everyone except Mike turned me down in that case, which is, um, I think that's, everyone knows that. But um, I was able to, through an, a journalist who had done an article on the Doobie Brothers, she got a quote from Ted Templeman, and I read it in a magazine article. This would have been like 2014 or 2013. And I wrote to her, and I said, look, I said, I've been trying to find Ted Templeman for you know two years. And I told her, and I just basically kind of laid my you know laid it out for her. Said, like, and she said, yeah, here's how you do it. Um, write to the Doobie Brothers. I thought, oh. So you know, the Doobie, basically the Doobie Brothers management knew how to reach Ted Templeman. Mm-hmm. And so I sent my request to the person in the office there, and they forwarded it to Ted. And Ted got on the phone with me, and we talked about Van Halen. And then uh, it's, you know, I, this is, I've been talking about this story now a few times on a few other podcasts, and it's kind of coming back to me and how it happened. And so about two months before, before Van Halen Rising came out, I got this email in my inbox from Ted Templeman. It said Van Halen Rising. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I don't, you know, it's like the book wasn't out yet. And I was thinking like, like what, like what, you know, you know, I just didn't, I don't know. I sort of like the moment, like you freeze for like that one second and you don't know what's going to come. But he was, he was actually had heard me on a podcast and, uh, where I talked about the stuff and he was like, Oh yeah. He's like, you know, I was wondering what happened with the book. I, I Googled your name and I saw this podcast and I listened to the stuff about Van Halen. And he's like, man, you really, you know, you really understand the band and stuff like that. And so what happened is in the weeks that followed, I emailed him again. This would have been the, like September of 2015 and said, would you think about coming out and do a book signing with me? And he said, yes. And so it was in Pasadena and he came out and sat with me at Roman's books and signed books. And we talked and that night and um, to basically people ask questions and Ted answered them. And I answered a couple of questions and we signed books and it was amazing. I was like amazing. And uh, you know, in the, in the aftermath of that, I talked to Ted a few times over a period of a few weeks, like in once a week or so we would talk and he was started sending me emails more frequently, kind of telling me about his life and about his past. And, you know, cause I was, you know, it was, he was like, Oh, you know, it's really cool. You know, one thing you really understand about Van Halen is how I wanted to, you know, record them live or whatever it would be. And then he would talk to me about Van Morrison. He would share a story with me about Van Morrison, about how he tried to do the same thing. That's what he learned basically to kind of get the first or second take down and hopefully be done with the song and you can clean it up later if you need to. But that's the raw performance that is oftentimes magical. And we talked about that. And, you know, eventually I, I basically pitched the idea of doing a book to him. And, uh, you know, I would I would be 
being 100% frank with you guys, he was kind of like, I don't know. Like, he was a little bit reticent. He's a pretty private person, and he's never really done anything like that before. I mean, he did interviews back, like, you know, in the kind of the heyday of his career and stuff. He obviously did interviews to promote albums and talked about Warner Brothers and stuff, but he was never a guy who was, like, out in front of... I mean, there were certain sort of type of people who are sort of executive slash producers in the music industry. I won't mention any names. They're kind of out, you know, you're kind of around and out and like do more of that stuff. And it was never really Ted's thing. And, you know, but when I talked to him about it, I said, look, I, if I was going to do a book about you, I would want, I think your story is interesting in terms of your musical development. Cause we had talked about his time as a pop star. And then he grew up as a jazz buff as a kid and was a trumpet player and a drummer. And then I said, the other thing is that I think if we did a book, if you'd be willing it would not just be about, you know, just about Van Halen or the Doobie Brothers. It would basically be about your entire your entire life in music and how you um, got to work with these incredible artists and and just kind of uh, try to thread all those those lines going back to his childhood when he would listen to these jazz records and later when he tried to use the same influences on the Doobie Brothers records or the things we, we talked about that stuff. And he was more open-minded about it and uh, was kind of like yeah go ahead if you want to try to write a book go ahead and uh I, I suspect in the beginning i never really asked him this overtly but i suspect in the beginning he was kind of like oh yeah greg's a nice guy he'll play around with this for six weeks and then he'll get bored and like move on like i'm gonna do a, you know he'll do a guns and roses book or something i don't know whatever but i just you know i just kept like kind of like keeping at it and uh yeah i got a book deal for it and uh yeah he um we spent a lot of time emailing but i also went out there to california and stayed with them it is you know basically visited him at his place got a hotel room and then would go over and spend a day with him and then the next day and then the next day and just do interviews all day long with him and just talk and then i type them up and i go back and, and uh call him and say hey you know there's this thing i didn't understand and just sort of i started just drafting the the book like that and we went like um we went along like that and you know it's been a long a long process. It took a lot longer to write than I thought. And it was a, uh, certainly it was a, a labor of love for me because I loved all the, the albums he had done with, with Van Halen, a lot of other bands that you mentioned, you know, like Aerosmith and bullet boys and sort of the stuff that had been, you know, obviously in the eighties and I knew all the Doobie brothers stuff that he had done. But, you know, for me too, I saw it as a, a chance to do a different type of book than Van Halen rising I didn't want to do necessarily another rock biography and I didn't want to just just crank out another, you know, whatever Van Halen book. And I thought this is a way to kind of get at the Van Halen story, which I was interested in more about the Van Halen story, but also put it within the context of a, a person's life who had done incredible, incredible work on so many different types of music and had some really amazing experiences as a, as a young person when he was like, as I mentioned, a pop star in the sixties and he had played in, um, jazz bands in college and he he had uh been in in uh, san francisco during this the folk the folk boom years he was there and had a record deal there so he had some really amazing uh interesting experiences that i thought all made for a compelling compelling story that would let people think about how somebody can got into you know broke into the business and then eventually rose to be one of the most powerful executives at warner brothers as well before he left the company in uh, 98 well, Greg, I look forward to reading this book myself, but man, I, as I'm sitting here and I've got questions I want to ask and all, but not knowing much about Ted Templeman other than the, the fact that he produced bands like Van Halen, like the Bullet Boys, uh, maybe I'm an idiot. I didn't know that he was a pop star. Yeah. It's so the first I'm hearing of this. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. It's, and again, this is the, the type of stuff that got me intrigued when we talked about it in the aftermath of the book event. So yeah, what ended up happening was that when Ted was, a young person in college, he formed a band with some friends of his. This is in Santa Cruz, California, called the Tiki's. And the Tiki's were kind of a 
I would say they had like a Beatles, believe it or not, like a, you call it like a Beatles at the beach image. So they were had they used to wear suits, but they wore Bermuda shorts and socks pulled up to their knees. And that's what they played. So they played kind of Beatles style music. They played covers and they were they were popular in Santa Cruz, California. And they ended up getting a record deal in uh, 1966. They got a record deal um, with a with a label in San, uh, San Francisco called Autumn Records. The house producer for Autumn Records is a guy named Sylvester Stone, better known as Sly Stone. And at the time, Sly Stone was nothing like the funky Sly Stone. He was like wore three piece suits. He was a had been a, a musician himself and was kind of a you know a, a guy who did a lot of producing for this label. And so that was the, the producer who worked with Ted and his band at first. Autumn Records eventually records goes bankrupt. Their um, the label assets, including the bands, get sold to Warner Brothers Records. That's when Warner Brothers brings them in, and they change their name to Harper's Bazaar. And that's when uh, Ted has a with his the other guys in his band Harper's Bazaar have a have a pop hit with Feeling Groovy. They do a, a cover of uh, Simon and Garfunkel's Feeling Groovy. It's produced by Lenny Warnker, who was the um, yeah, at the time, a young a young producer working for the label who was just maybe a year or two older than Ted and uh, was just starting out and he had a chance to produce this band, Harper's Bazaar, and the song was a hit. I think it went to like number 13 on the charts or something like that. And those guys, after they did that single, this is an interesting way it used to work, was that when you, if you had a single that was successful, so if you were kind of a new artist, you had a single that was successful, they would, they would make an album with you, the label would. And so they basically rushed Harper's Bazaar back in the studio and they made a record and it, it was it was a hit and they toured around the world and uh, Ted got to do everything from be on TV, primetime TV, to appear with Bob Hope, Raquel Welch, uh, Lou Armstrong, George Burns, I mean, kind of the people that our parents' generation will probably recognize as being big stars. And they were, you know, they were a, they were a um, kind of a, a regular on those, those TV variety shows of the 60s and they sold some records. I mean, they were never like, you know, they were never huge. I mean, they were never something like, you know, I'm trying to think of a, a comparable band. I mean, they were never like as big as, you know, Flying Burrito Brothers or something like that. And they were never like a bigger, uh, a huge band, but they had, a, you know, a good run. They, they played a lot of concerts and were at it for four records. And so, um, yeah, that was Ted's Ted's uh, time as a as a pop star. So, yeah, he was um, was doing that from 60s. You know, he was basically in the public eye in that sense from 66 to about 70 when the band split uh because you know they basically their record sales had declined and the musical the musical climate of the day had changed so much they were what i would call a sunshine pop band so if you think about the 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 fifth dimension the association the mamas and the papas they were sort of that you know that that type of soft pop sound and you know that that had kind of had its moment in time and was they were sort of uh, seen as passe by by the time the 70s came around so those guys broke up and that's when ted ended up going into the industry as a first as a tape listener actually for warner brothers but that was the that was the shift for him well when i look at his discography one of the the albums that pops out to me i'm i really like little feet a lot i think they're one of the most underrated american bands of all time um you know people talk about the band how the band had all these american influences and kind of you know they you know their style they could right. be country one second, you know, blues, ragtime, right. or whatever. Little Feet was that as well, in, 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 on steroids at times. 
What? How did he wind up with them on Sailing Shoes? Because that's my favorite album by them, and and one that really kind of changed their the trajectory of their career. To be honest. Sure. Yeah. So um, they did. Little Feet was on. Got signed to Warner Brothers. I think in 1970 or 71, and Ted had just started producing. He'd gone from being a tape listener to getting a chance to be basically a junior producer at Warner Brothers, and he had done the Doobie Brothers record. And then, the the if I remember the story correctly, Russ Teitelman, who had quite a long career himself at Warner Brothers and you know was producing great records up until the 1980s and 90s, um, you know, I think he worked with Steve Winwood and Clapton and all these people. So he, he was a producer as well in 1970, 71, and he was producing Little Feet. He did their first record, but he had a big falling out with a Lowell George, uh, apparently a very bad falling out. And so um, I don't remember, I have to look back at the book. It was either that, you know, Ted was, it was suggested to Ted or Ted kind of jumped at the chance, but Ted was very excited to, to, to produce little feet. And so when there was an opportunity to do that, he, yeah, he was all over the idea of doing that. And um, yeah, that was, I believe the first record he produced with Don Landy at his side. That would have been 19, late 71, and the album came out in early 72. So they basically did the album in like the fall of 71, the Sail and Choose record, and then it came out in early 72. Um, but yeah, that's that's an album, if you want to talk to Ted about it, and anyone that's Ted about albums, I would say the albums he's most apt to talk about are going to be Van Halen's debut, uh, and then Little Feet is, you know, right there in the top five or six records he's going to he's going to talk about if you ask him about albums he you know loved producing because he was he loved the band so much. He used um, I'll give you another example of how much he loved Little Feet is that he used Billy Payne, Bill Payne, the keyboard player on tons and tons of sessions. So while Bill was in Little Feet, he also did things. He played on the Carly Simon record for, for Ted. And in fact, if you listen to like China Grove, the middle part of China Grove, that piano part in the middle, that's Bill Payne of Little Feet. And Bill played on, um, you know, tons of, of uh, Doobie Brothers stuff, tons and tons right. of Doobie Brothers stuff. He's kind of their go to piano guy and Corgan guy. And so um, Ted had, a, yeah, Ted had a really good relationship with all those guys. And when I say good. I mean, there was definitely had some, I think, some moments of tension with uh, certainly like Lowell was a, was a kind of a, at times, could be a difficult person to to get on with um but um yeah you know they did he also did time loves a hero which came out in 77 which is more of their proggy jazzy i guess jazz i guess jazz rock would probably be the parts of it um that was when lowell was was under the weather so to speak he was he was certainly suffering from the ills of the industry and was not in the best of health and so the other guys in the band kind of stepped to the fore and wrote more um you know, just again, like more more stuff that probably was more in the realm of like maybe like Steely Dan than it was about the kind of the bluesier, um, more slippery stuff that jazzy stuff that uh, not jazzy bluesy, you know, more Americana stuff maybe that, that they'd done with the early Little Feet. So uh, yeah, Ted did two records with Little Feet. Well, b- before I throw it to Chris, I know he's got a question for you. Um, Templeman did not do OU812. Am I correct on that? Correct. Right. right. He didn't do fifty one fifty either. Right. But but a political blues winds up on that album. How, does do you know how that happened by chance? Yeah, I'm assuming that was Don Landy, um, because a political blues is on sailing shoes, right? If right. I remember correctly, yeah. and Landy was Landy was in, in effect, um, you know, Landy himself will tell you that he didn't want to be the producer because <laughs> he didn't need the headache. You know, you know, it's funny because being the producer means points, you know, you know, basically a percentage of the album and there's more money. But, you know, I think Don was smart enough to know that he's like, you know, it's not worth it with the Van Halen's. Maybe it wasn't worth the headache to take that level of responsibility. I'll just I'll just record it and make it sound as good as I can. You guys make the decisions, you know. Um, 
So, um, but I suspect that's, I never asked Don that directly, but I suspect that's how that, that came to that. Um, but it also could be Sammy. I mean, Sammy, the, the other part of it is that Sammy was certainly well aware of little feet, well aware of them. And, um, was probably, I mean, my, I have no doubt that he's a fan, so he may have suggested it, but there was that Don connection too, who, who did the engineering on, on sale and shoes. Well, the, the interesting thing is the opening song on sale and shoes is a song called easy to slip. And I think it's the best Sammy Hagar song that Sammy Hagar's never recorded. Huh. If you go back and listen to it, it just it it sounds like Sammy Hagar, and it sounds like a, a like a song he would do like on that Light Roast album, you know, where it's not mm-hmm. quite as hard or heavy. But yeah, I love that album. I think they're one of the most underrated bands. I know Jimmy Page has said they're his favorite American band of all time. Um, you know, Lowell George was a character, and uh, you know, like I said, he succumbed to the ills of the industry at a very early age. I think had he not died when he did, I think they would be more prominent now than they oh, are. Yeah. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, he was really an amazing, amazing talent. I mean, that's, if you're anyone out there's a little feet fan, Ted shared a lot of really cool stories about Lowell. I mean, just basically kind of personal stories about like, basically, you know, just kind of like il- illustrating what a character he was. He was just a unique a unique human being had a very unusual way of seeing the world. And, and Ted really, you know, loved the guy. They were very, actually very good friends. And, uh, Ted always talked about it. He would, he, uh, you know, he always put it to me. He's like, I talked to either Lenny Warnker, who was the producer of Harper's Bazaar. who was Ted's mentor and his good friend is basically his best friend. Um, or Lowell almost every night. So that was kind of his regular, you know, you know, hotel room, you're traveling for work and, you know, Ted would pick up the phone and call Lowell or vice versa. They would talk, you know, catch up and just one of these relationships that they had, even when they weren't, quote unquote, maybe musically seeing eye to eye about things, they would, you know, they would still um, talk. You know, Lowell produced a lot of the, old, the Little Feet records that I'm, I suspect that Ted probably would have been happy to produce if they had given him the chance to do it. And so, I, but I know that Lowell you know, was hard headed and thing about um, things. And, uh, but they seemed Ted and he and Ted always had a, had a, a very close friendship, and I, Ted was devastated when he died in 1979. Well, Greg, in, in respect to your time, I'm going to throw just a few at you, just that he produced. Uh, first sure. off, the, one that I I can let you talk about last, because I know that's what the rock fans will want to hear about, and that being the Bullet Boys. But a couple that kind of intrigued me is um, Steve Stevens. Of course, I just adore Billy Idol. Absolutely adore Billy Idol. And I know the Atomic Playboys and – and then the other one is uh, Captain Beefheart. I, I don't sure. know if y'all got into that very much, but I didn't. Oh know yeah, we any... got. Oh yeah, we got into Captain Beefheart. Okay. Okay. A cool. Lot of Captain Beefheart story. All right. Well, I know. I know. I mean, look, one of my one of my music idols, and and this makes this makes David absolutely cringe is Tom Waits. So, being that that Captain Beefheart was a big influence on Tom Waits. Uh, and I've I've started listening to more Captain Beefheart, so I was just a little bit curious if you had anything on him. Sure, yeah. Um, so when Ted got a job as a um, associate producer at Warner Brothers, you know, out of the gate, the first record he did was the Doobie Brothers with Lenny Warnker, and that one flopped. And so soon after that, he did Van Morrison, and then early on, I mean, Ted was working these incredibly long hours and days trying to prove himself. And so he did Little Feet. He did Doobie Brothers' second record, Toulouse Street. And then he did um, Beefheart and all pretty close together. I mean, they were very much stacked together. But yeah, Beefheart was, you know, again, I I don't think Ted remembered how he ended up producing them, so to speak, except they were on Reprise, which is a Warner Brothers sister label. And uh, 
he was super excited to work with them because he loved their percussion. So if you listen to Clear Spot, there's a tremendous amount of percussion, Kyle Bell and all these different um, um, congas and just sort of all these wacky per- percussion ideas that and rhythm ideas that that actually supposedly Beefheart, from what you know Ted recollection was, that Beefheart arranged and wrote almost all that stuff in terms of like he basically was the guy who put all those musical parts together. And um, yeah, they did the record, and uh, there's some very, very interesting Beefheart stories because it was uh, it tested Ted's patience for sure. And uh, you know, I think I'm not a, a guy who's a super familiar with Beefheart's overall catalog, but I will tell you that I know that you know they they were trying to do something that kind of held on to the Beefheart eccentricity, kind of the blues shouter with the uh, totally off the wall lyrics, but actually make something that was a little bit more commercially viable. So there was a couple, you know, one song called too much time on there, which is almost like a Motown song. But um, yeah, I mean like big eyed beans from Venus and some of the other stuff that's too, uh, that's on there. I mean, it's, it's great stuff, but yeah, Ted had a, there's some really funny stories because Beefheart was like a, a maniac in some ways. And I mean that only in the, you know, with, with affection, not necessarily like to trash the guy, but just like, he was definitely a weird difficult person to deal with yeah i look forward to checking that out man and then the other what was the other one you asked me about oh, i said i said steve stevens and then the, oh, of course yeah. the one that all the rock guys are going to want to hear about is the bullet boys yeah steve stevens real quick yeah um you know i think i i know i don't ted and i really didn't talk about atomic playboys very much which you know it was in passing i mean he more talked about the fact that he loved steve stevens he saw his, actually his son teddy jr had gone to see billy idol in santa barbara and i guess this would have been maybe like billy's first you know solo tour through america like 82 or 83 and kind of put billy's music on ted's radar and then ted saw steve and ted always was trying to be a person who was really had his finger on the pulse of the hot guitar players i mean that was you know he wanted to basically um be abreast of who was who he thought had the real kind of it factor and stevens definitely did and so he signed steve stevens as a solo artist. So the idea was that that Steve was finishing up his project with Billy Idol, which was, I think, was it Whiplash Smile? Was that the one that uh, came out? That was, the last, that was the last record he did with him before rejoining. Yeah, I think, it was, I think it was 86 when it came out. Correct. Okay, right. So that makes sense. So Ted signed Billy Idol, excuse me, um, Steve Stevens, to a solo record deal. That you basically, you know, you come on, we'll do like a, you know, a solo record. And that ended up not happening. And that's when Atomic Playboy's came along now ted was the executive producer which means you know in effect that he like kind of kept his kept his uh his finger in the pie so to speak to kind of see what those guys were up to and probably listen to tracks and had made suggestions but he wasn't in the studio with those guys every day but um the, the other thing that happened which is out there for stevens that talked about it was that that is soon after ted had signed steve stevens roth left van halen you know again this may have been like six months or whatever and and um Ted was instrumental in getting Steve and Dave in the same room together, but Steve couldn't join Dave's band because he had still a commitment to Billy Idol. He wasn't done with the Whiplash Smile album and they were going to tour, I presume, behind it or something. And, you know, he couldn't he couldn't um, do that. But apparently that was a very serious conversation those guys had about, you know, you know, basically Dave asking Steve, would you would you come on board with me to do the solo project? And yeah, that was Ted's. um, Ted's work there in terms of putting those guys in the same, you know, same uh, wavelength. Cool. Oh, Bullet Boys. Oh, Bullet Boys. Yeah. Do Bullet Boys. Bullet Boys. So, yeah, Bullet Boys was, um, was a record that uh, came out in 1988. And there was one that uh, that Ted 
was basically a band that Ted was turned on to, believe it or not, by his sister. It's kind of a funny story. This Ted's sister, who's um, now uh, has passed away in the last year or two, she passed away. Her name was Roberta Templeman, but Roberta Peterson. She was married to a guy named John Peterson, who was actually the drummer in Harper's Bazaar. So um, uh, Roberta, soon after Ted got a job at Warner Brothers, Ted had so many tapes he was trying to listen to as a tape listener and kind of as a young producer. He was just overwhelmed with the amount of the volume of stuff. So he actually got his sister a job at Warner Brothers to say, hey, come in, help me kind of sort through this stuff and keep me, you know, basically up to speed on like what I'm supposed to be um, doing and help me with um, with these unsolicited demos and things because there was just so much stuff. And he knew his sister had good ears. She was a musician. And so she rose to be quite a successful executive at Warner Brothers. She was instrumental in signing Devo. I remember she was instrumental in signing uh, Dire Straits. There was a number of um, Flaming Lips later, Jane's Addiction, she had, you know, quite a quite a talent for A&R, but she saw this band called Bullet Boys in Hollywood in 88 or so. And um, I guess the, from what I, again, this I got this from Jimmy, the Jimmy, the Bullet Boys drummer told me this. Ted didn't tell me this because Ted didn't remember this part of the story. But I guess she she went up to them and said, um, yeah, I work for Warner Brothers and I really like you guys. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think it's your possibility. We might want to look about think looked into this. You guys, and she goes, but um, you know, I'm really into this sort of heavy metal stuff. But I, I know my, you know, my brother is, and he's going to come down, and maybe he'll take a look at you. And so the 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 trick here is that Jimmy, Jimmy, and this guy's the Bullet Boys were talking to a woman named Roberta Peterson. They had no idea it was Ted's sister. And so when like when Ted pulled up, supposedly in a in a limousine, according to Jimmy, or, or a white Rolls Royce limousine. I don't know if that's true or that's sort of a ginned up story. But like at their dumpy rehearsal place, that Ted came in a limo and and listened to them and liked them and then offer them a record deal and the rest was kind of history. But that was the, yeah. So actually Ted's sister, Roberta was the one who turned Ted onto it and Ted heard them and was like, yeah, I mean, I, I could hear the, you know, I think he probably could hear the, the young raw. I don't want to say Van Halen S thing. Cause I don't think it was all about that for him. He never said like, Oh yeah, they're like a clone of Van Halen. That's why I wanted them. But it was more that just, I'm sure he saw the same sort of, you know, ho- you know, raw talent in Hollywood. They've got some, some songs here and let's give it a shot. And uh, yeah, it did. It did well. It was a really good, uh, a good successful record for Ted. And those guys. Well, Greg, I mean, we can't thank you enough uh, for taking some time out to do this. Um, Chris and I have been talking about trying to get you on for a couple of months, and uh, now everybody's got a, everybody's got plenty of downtime. So, uh, if you want to, well, especially when I make you guys wait, as I, uh, I will confess to your listeners that I forgot, and I was like, <laughs> David was kind enough to be like, I don't have anything else to do tonight except sit here, so it wasn't a big deal. <laughs> not, like I, not like I go to the store or anything or do anything. So. Right, right. Well. Um, you can follow uh, Greg on Twitter at Greg Renoff, and the book is Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. Uh, depending on what outlets you want to get uh, use, you can get it right now. Um, uh, Amazon is saying officially released on April 21st, and I think that's what Greg said earlier. Uh, once again, Greg, it's always it, fun to talk to you. Um, uh, you're smart guy, smartest guy we've had on here, and uh, uh, we always enjoy talking to you. And you're great on Twitter. He's a great follow. He, uh, he really engages people and uh, sometimes puts out his opinion on some list and stuff like that. And, uh, it's always very interesting. Hey, hey, and David, let me say something before we yeah. wrap up too. So when we first met Greg, I didn't buy Greg's book. I didn't. David got his book. He got it autographed and David was talking about getting him on, having him on the podcast. And this was after the fact. And I was like, Oh God, I guess I need to read the book. And so I'll order a copy because I wasn't, I, I mean, no disrespect, Greg, but I was like, I don't, Nope, I got it. I couldn't put the damn thing down. <laughs> and that's my so the point I want to make is first of all, Van Halen Rising is excellent. 
I mean, I can't recommend it enough. And for that alone, first of all, read Van Halen Rising and then read Ted Templeman. Or, or vice versa, whatever. Excellent, excellent, excellent book Van Halen Rising was, and I can't wait for Ted Templeman's book. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's really kind of you guys to say that, both of you guys. And I would also say that, uh, you know, the thing that's nice, too, I think that it wasn't naturally, you know, my plan, but with the Ted Templeman book, too, what's nice is that the Ted book, provides a lot of, you know, kind of continues the story through Ted's eyes with Van Halen all the way up through. I mean, he did Foreign Lawful Connor Knowledge and he did the second Private Life record with Ed. He, he produced it with Ed um, in 1989 or 1990. And so there was a that relationship with Ed and Van Halen and Sammy kind of all continued for the for the years that followed after that. So there was a kind of a long from 78 all the way up through into the 90s. So it was an interesting, you know, kind of like you kind of put those two together and get a at least a view from my writing and from working with Ted and, you know, on the Van Halen rising book is on both cases, you get a kind of a look at the, the Van Halen trajectory into the nineties, which is a cool, a cool view. Well, thanks again to Greg and uh, Chris and I'll be back with you. Hopefully uh, sooner rather than later. And to play us out track number two off sailing shoes from little feet is cold, cold, cold. Take care, everybody.